Thank you. Th thank you very much. Well, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to take part in this event and revisit and rediscover um, some of the elements of the life of Robert, Robert Applegarth, who at the crucial moment, in fact, found himself on the right side of history. Now, it's well known that the first uh, TUC at Manchester in 1868 originated in a put-down. Um, it was one that was symbolic of the exclusion which trade unionists of the generation which I'll talk about this morning experienced, and which is, it was the objective of my subject, Robert Applegarth, to overcome. Now, in October 1865, the uh, National Association for the Promotion of Social Science held its congress in Sheffield and heard and discussed papers read on a variety of topics. One of the papers was by a staunchly non-unionist pen grinder from Sheffield named uh, John Wilson, and his contribution was a systematic attack on unions and collective approaches to the relations between labour and capital. And it was followed by a paper from another Sheffield figure, a printer named William Dronfield, who belonged to the Provincial Typographical Association, arguing the uh, benefits of unions both to their members, but more importantly, to the community at large. But then the next year, when the proceedings of the Congress came to be published in a 600-page book, Wilson's paper was printed in full. Of Dronfield, all that was said was, Mr. Dronfield read a paper pointing out the advantages of trade unions. <laughs> now, the actual title had been A Working Man's View of Trade Societies. So the omission was dismissive not only of Dronfield, the individual, but of the group that he represented. Hence the idea taken up by uh, S.C. Nicholson and W.H. Wood of Manchester Trades Council. They were both men officers in the Provincial Typographical Association to hold a congress of their own. Now in January 1874, Sheffield hosted the sixth such congress. Delegates representing over 1.1 million members were present, and its proceedings were reported by large numbers of newspaper men. The TUC's newly created parliamentary committee, meanwhile, were able to report a coup. Just two months earlier, they'd been invited by the Home Secretary, Robert Lowe, to set out the Congress's objectives in their long-running campaign to reform the labour laws affecting strikers. Now, it was believed to have been the first time that the TUC was invited by government to give its views on current policy making. And not only that, but Lowe, the Home Secretary, who had been notorious as the leading opponent of extending the franchise in 1867, <coughs> was overtly sympathetic to the TUC uh, case. And this particular case was especially founded upon the principle that there should be no special laws directed against working people who were acting collectively. Now, the fulfilment of the TUC's lobbying was achieved in 1865, oddly enough, by a Conservative government. And the Congress that year was able to celebrate the, that achievement and to reflect that within under a decade, it has achieved many of the objectives that it had been set up for. Meanwhile, at the same time, an organisation set up to represent employers was only slightly guilty of that exaggeration when it complained they, the unions, 
have the attentive ear of the ministry of the day and their communications are received by the ministry with instant and respectful attention. Now, Robert Applegarth, who was General Secretary from 1862 to 1871 of the Amalgamated Society of Carpenters and Joiners, was the person identified as much as anyone for bringing about this change in status. Though highlighting him on this 150th anniversary requires a bit of justification because he wasn't actually present at the first two congresses in Manchester and then Birmingham in 1869. And though he took part in the proceedings at the London Congress in March 1871, he did so as a representative of another lobbying body, the Conference of Amalgamated Trades, and he only had a brief walk-on part in the proceedings. And that, so far as I know, were his only appearances other than as a delegate on the platform of the, con of the Congress. Now, Applegarth's significance lies instead in his membership of the group of union secretaries based in London, um, whom Sidney and Beatrice were famously dubbed the Junta. Uh, the contemporaries, many contemporaries had less <coughs> neutral terms uh, to apply to them. Um, they were prominent during the potentially hostile sittings of the Royal Commission, which was appointed to investigate trade unions in 1867. And with their legal advisers, they effectively defined the legal settlement which made unions legal bodies. This legislation was successfully passed in 1871 so that unions could safely own property, um, enter into ordinary transactions, but at the same time, of course, the law couldn't interfere with their internal affairs. Now, for three years, these two bodies worked in parallel. The TUC was the discussion forum. The Conference of Amalgamated Trades was the London lobbying body. At the Congress in 1871, the TUC took over the lobbying, and Applegarth effectively handed this over to George Howell, who became the first secretary to the Parliamentary Committee. Howell had a fondness for detail, and he once claimed that between 1868 and 1889, as many as uh, 69 statutes on a host of matters, not just industrial, were passed in Parliament as a result of the influence of Labour's lobby, and particularly the TUC. This might have been an overstatement, but it illustrates that this was a period when unionism, and the TUC in particular, was impacting on national life. But what of Applegarth himself? And it's possible, uh, I think, to compare him with some of those early founders of the TUC to place in perspective his own distinctiveness. Um, W.H. Wood, one of the two uh, uh, originators, was a compositor. And the census shows that his two sons also became compositors. Likewise, Nicholson was a compositor as was his father and his own son. And this helps to explain why Wood, um, who published a pamphlet in 1867 called Trade Unions Defended, spent so much time focusing on the issue of apprenticeship, um, limiting the numbers um, to protect people who'd invested their early years in learning a trade, but also, as he mentioned, um, to protect, to give a guarantee to parents <coughs> who were thinking of uh, apprenticing their sons that their sons could have a reasonable, secure working life. So for him, 
this was a vested interest and a sort of birthright in the trade. Wood and Nicholson spent most of their working lives in Manchester. Uh, Wood was born and died in Salford. Though they summoned and organised the first Congress, I don't say since they had any ambition to lead the movement nationally. But there are others who definitely were, and of course there's the famous figure of George Potter, a perpetual thorn in the side of the junta, and a notable personality at early congresses. He's commemorated in that memorable passage in the Webb's History of Trade Unionism, where he's described as an expert in the arts of agitation and advertisement. <clears throat> but Roberts's 1958 history of the TUC rehabilitated him to some degree, pointing out what a leading figure he was in the movement and how he was often quicker off the mark than the junta to seize the opportunity to promote the union's cause. Now, like Wooden Nicholson, Potter's trade was a family tradition. His father was a carpenter in Kenilworth, and Potter himself followed his brother to Coventry, where they both served apprenticeships. And genealogical sources now also reveal that Potter was a bit older than he's previously thought to have been, uh, born in 1828 probably, so a teenager in, in the Chartist years and five years older than my subject, Applegarth. Now these life stories, I think, help to indicate what was rather distinctive about Applegarth's own trajectory, because unionism wasn't in his blood. He was born in Hull in 1834, and he didn't follow his mariner father to sea, um, as so many sons did in Hull. Indeed, his father's a shadowy figure, inevitably away at sea as a whaler in the Greenland waters, and rarely at home. And aside in Applegarth's biography that his father was generous rather than prudent is perhaps indicative. Uh, his father died in Hull in March 1858, apparently alone and leaving nothing. Now Applegarth, along with his siblings, was baptised a primitive Methodist, but in later life he became a free thinker. And by his own account, he started working aged 10 as a shoe black and only later picked up the trade of a carpet as a joiner while employed in a workshop in Hull. He never served a full apprenticeship. By 1852, he'd moved to Sheffield and appears to have supported his mother, who'd moved there presumably as a result of his father's long absences and died there in August 1854. After that, Applegarth, like so many artisans at that time, emigrated to the USA in the search of better opportunities. There's a doubt about the date. He always says that he went in December 1854, but we know that he married in Sheffield the following summer and had a son, son born early next year. So there's a query about the dates, but not the fact of him being there. This period in the States was formative, for it offered for him the idea of an open society, free from aristocratic monopoly, or an established church. And it also gave him the shocking experience of slavery, an experience that shaped his life. By 1858, he was back in Sheffield, where he joined the local carpenters' union in May, and equally significantly, in his view, the free library, the public library, in June, where he effectively taught himself. Again, like many contemporaries, the strike and lockout in the London building trade in 1859-60, which attracted national attention, was a turning point. Um, 
he saw the need for national organisation both to spread risk and bring in unorganised areas that were always likely to undercut those that were unionised. So he persuaded his local union to join the newly created Amalgamated Society of Carpenters and Joiners. Incredibly, within a year, he was elected to its, become its general secretary and moved to London. And in London, he made the move into political activity, taking part in the uh, franchise reform movement uh, to give work, working people the vote, and took part in international solidarity movements, as we've now seen them, support for the North in the Civil War, for Polish nationalists in their rising in 1863. He spoke at a deputation to the Foreign Secretary in May 1863, which urged war with Russia to free Poland. And then he also supported the Italian independence movement. This led him into the International Working Men's Association, which was founded in 1864 in London, and he got to know Marx. Um, in industrial politics, Applegarth was an exponent of courts of conciliation and arbitration, as they were called, um, seen now as early forms of collective bargaining formalising what would later be termed, and the term didn't enter currency, of course, until the early 20th century, industrial relations. For him, this was significant because it gave labour a voice and formally an equal footing. Equal numbers of employers and workers were represented, and this fulfilled a long-standing aspiration for a joint regulation of industry. Characteristically, though, Applegarth presented this as a step in the direction of modernity, and he was very uninterested, as far as I can tell, in the Guild president that so intrigued people like George Howe. Indeed, he always looked to the future and regarded the present state of relations between labour and capital as temporary, and his great vision was cooperative production. A point that perhaps needs highlighting more than ever is that Applegarth was operating in a period awash with newspapers. Industrial disputes were reported in remarkable detail, along with the statements by the participants. Applegarth saw this, and it offered one particular advantage. Um, while newspapers were often hostile to unions editorially, they nevertheless published very full reports of what was taking place. Moreover, it was a regular practice when a union paid out a substantial benefit to an individual member, often quite substantial sums, a hundred pound accident benefit, for, for example, they'd make the presentation at a national, at a public meeting, which were accompanied, of course, by speeches on the value of union membership, all of which were reported in columns in the local press and even sometimes nationally. But by contrast, of course, employers were often secretive and notoriously unwilling to open the books. So to take advantage of this, this contrast, Applegarth actually advertised the Amalgamated Society's openness. Annual reports were circulated, setting out the financial position, and they were published in the press, notionally, of course, to show how much the union was spending on benevolent purposes, sickness benefit, and so on. It was also an advertisement to new members and won the approval of public opinion. But its other object was to make clear to anyone challenging them the extent of the resources that they could draw on. The public debate on unionism following the appointment of the Royal Commission was really Applegarth's moment. 
He's been described as the star witness appearing before the commissioners to put the union case. He was examined on four occasions and even had two actuaries sprung on him to try to prove that his society was insolvent. He fended them all off. And it's hard to convey just how significant the amalgamated society was. And I'll just give one example to give the feel. On the 1st of May 1868, a month before that first TUC convened at Manchester, a leading article in the Times newspaper was actually devoted to the ASG, uh, ASCJ's published annual report. And the leader writer wrote, the amalgamated society has enjoyed for some time an exceptional reputation among trade unions for good management, prosperity and strength. And it went on to applaud the report which Applegarth himself had compiled and signed as an impressive document. Hence, of course, the willingness to hail the Amalgamated Society as a model trade union, and also as a novelty, which has led to much historical writing, of course, as to whether it was typical and whether it was at all new. But it, the, another, a particularly important point is that a legal case in the summer of 1869 turned on the rule book of Applegarth's union and really opened the way to the recognition of unions as legal bodies. But it's at this point in the summer of 1869 that Applegarth turned to other questions. The first of these was elementary education. He was active in the National Education League, which campaigned for compulsory, free, unsectarian education, a cause taken up by many other trade unionists. He saw this as the key to social regeneration. Technical education was another aspect of his interests, reflecting a contemporary concern with the effects of foreign competition on British industry. Rather than blame workshop practices and trade unions for, for Britain's apparently failing position as shown at the Paris Exhibition in 67, Applegarth contended that it was the lack of government investment in scientific education for workers that was holding the country back. Why should scientific knowledge be the monopoly of capital, he asked. He also made highly unfavorable comparisons of the provision in Britain of popular and technical education with the compulsory public systems he witnessed in Switzerland and the technical schools in France and Germany. He wanted compulsory schooling with technical education up to the age of 14. Now, Applegarth's own experience of learning a trade in his late teens informed this view. He was critical of the idea of starting boys at a trade age 12, purportedly to familiarise themselves um, with the tools of the trade and to develop the manual dexterity required to use them. This was all nonsense, he told the Royal Commission on Scientific Instruction in the summer of 1870. A trade could be learned in three years, and anyway, apprentices starting at 12 weren't allowed near the tools. In his own trade, he told the commissioners, quote, they keep a lad about two years dragging a handcart through the streets, running errands, boiling a glue pot, and all that kind of thing. The former task he couldn't resist adding could be done by a donkey. Why not instead give the boys a scientific grounding in their trade in those early years? And grievance in those years was that Labour still had a no direct voice in Parliament, um, and, and certainly no MPs. 
Applegarth was an obvious candidate, but he failed to find a parliamentary seat. He withdrew at Maidstone in face of liberal opposition at a by-election in 1870. And he also was unsuccessful, rather sadly in view of his promotion, the popular control of elementary education, standing as a working man's candidate for Lambeth in the board school elections towards the end of 1870. At the end of 1870, though, he did achieve official standing, though not a paid position, when he became the first working man to be appointed a royal commissioner. But it proved a personally disastrous undertaking, and once that he would want something that he was bounced into doing by a Home Secretary anxious to include a working class representative on the commission. The Royal Commission was to investigate the working of the Contagious Diseases Act, the system of state policed and regulated prostitution in military towns, with its punitive regime of compulsory medicalisation and stigmatisation of working class women. Having been a uh, witness himself, Applegarth now found himself a commissioner and was very assiduous. He attended 33 sessions, I found. He cross-questioned J.S. Mill, the philosopher, about the um, uh, libertarian aspects of this system of policing. And he even attended on days when the TUC was meeting in London in March 1870. But among the exchanges he had was a rather revealing one with the feminist campaigner against the Contagious Diseases Acts, um, Josephine Butler. He called into question her scheme for setting up sewing and envelope-making workshops as an alternative employment for women in the towns affected. Applegarth saw this as undermining the male breadwinner by introducing low-paid competition into the labour market and therefore, as he put it, multiplying the problem. Butler, on the other hand, replied the opposite. The closing off of such occupations to women, whether by craft restrictions or factory legislation, pushed poor women downwards, as she put it, into that activity. Now, all this um, work as a commissioner um, lost Applegarth the support of his union's executive, who seemed to have been embarrassed by the topic, and ultimately his livelihood. His enemies and rivals in London ousted him in April 1871, while he was still a commissioner. In an ignominious end to his tenure of the modern trade union, his dissenting executive, who proved to be a minority as things turned out, brought along two wagons and 20 men to empty his office, um, his papers, his books and his furniture to take to rival premises in South London. And another headquarters was set up in Manchester. But he was still active on that, though he was um, um, never made much from his public activity. He was never comfortably off, despite what um, his opponents often said. But he still appeared on public platforms supporting women's suffrage. He became to support the repeal of the CD Acts. He supported Plimsoll's campaign for uh, safer merchant shipping, which of course was resonant from his whole origins. And after the arrests of striking gas stokers in London in December 1872 for breaking their contracts in what the law regarded as aggravated circumstances, he became a member of the Defence Committee. <coughs> that photograph, which is, is, is pictured on the um, uh, in the panels of the foyer, is one of the earliest surviving group photos of TUC-related figures in this period. 
His role was to spirit some of the indicted strikers out of the country before they could stand trial. After about 1873, he disappears largely from view. He appeared as a delegate at the Con Congress in 1874, um, but sub subsequently his involvement largely ceased. And he disappeared from Union affairs until the Webbs rediscovered him when re writing their history in the early 90s. And in 1913, just before his 80th birthday, a biography was written of him to which Sidney Webb contributed a uh, preface. He lived until 1924, long enough to be labelled one of, quotes, the servile generation in Raymond Postgate's iconoclastic history of the Builders' Union, published in 1923, as a sort of reaction against the Victorians. Postgate thought Applegarth and his generation were too cautious and too respectable. A more sympathetic reading of Applegarth by Asa Briggs, and published in 1954, placed him in a mid-Victorian context, in which trade unions found a place as recognised institutions, and when the TUC emerged as their representative body. And this was his major legacy. Now, it's true that he was operating in a climate where governments and the civil servants who advised them, to a significant extent, were willing to listen to and respond to the sorts of arguments he and his contemporaries at the TUC were putting forward. And there were a few so-called new model employers who were willing to encourage and support them. But I hope, as I, the, the narrative of his life suggests, his public work on behalf of the movement carried a considerable personal cost. Still, he was open-minded and optimistic, as he said, until the end. And he wasn't one of those mid-Victorian Labour figures who went on to do lament developments later in the century. Instead, he was enthused and inspired by new forms of trade unionism. In the pre-1914 period, Applegarth welcomed, for example, industry-wide general unions, and he hoped that they would take the place of the sectional craft bodies of the sort which he had led and defended to such extent, to such effect, half a century earlier. Thank you very much. <laughs>